Good morning, church. Happy New Year. It is good to be with you. It's good to gather uh, this unique year uh, where we would be able to celebrate on Christmas morning and then even on uh, the first uh, day of the year. It's a privilege and honor to be able to do that, to be with you. Uh, Nowhere else I would rather be uh, in this moment uh, than here with you gathered to sing God's praises, to hear his word, to sit under his word, to fellowship in his word, uh, to take the supper and enjoy his grace and mercy, and to be together as a faith family. I must admit to you, though, as a preacher, there are times... And there are weeks where you come to a text of Scripture that uniquely causes you to tremble at the thought of having to preach it. The weightiness of our text today, and we'll preach the entirety of Exodus chapter 19, has done that to me this week. I've been a mess wrestling with how to communicate the glorious realities of this text because about what it teaches about the terror and glory of an encounter with the living God. By God's grace, even as we jump in and study this chapter of Scripture, we'll see some of God's unique, towering transcendence, his volcanic holiness, his utterly unique set-apartness, how entirely other he is. We'll also see much of his condescending eminence, how this God in a league of his own from on high stoops down low to pour out unspeakable riches of mercy on the undeserving transcendent and imminent, ultimate and intimate, stupendously above all, but graciously stooping to the lowliest. There is no one like our God. So holy that no one may see him and live, Exodus 33, 20. A God who has to conceal himself, Isaiah 45, 15. But so loving that he'd send his one and only son that we might live with him eternally. In Christ, a God who not only has to conceal himself, but in Christ, a God who reveals himself, Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew 1, 23. Human language feels entirely inadequate when communicating some of the glorious realities of our text today. I resonate with John Piper, who, upon explaining God's holiness, said that language is pushing its limits of usefulness here. And then after an attempt to define God's holiness, concedes In the end, language runs out, which reminds me, and and again, in a text like this, and it's always true, but reminds me specifically in these kind of moments, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the living God to open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our wills to see and behold wondrous things in his law. So let's ask even for his help now. Pray with me. Father, I do tremble before your word this morning. But I I tremble with joy because of the perfect work of Christ and with power because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within because of your grace and mercy. And so we pray, living God, meet with us. I pray that with a unique trembling this morning. Because I realize so often in a culture that we live in that is very casual in thinking about God. We don't know who we're thinking about. So help us think rightly about you. Help us think humbly about you. But explode our affection and love and honor of you. By your spirit, we need your spirit and we plead in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Exodus chapter 19, what we see is the overwhelming holy Lord of all. Speaks with his redeemed people through the mediator Moses. 
to prepare them for a covenant that he will set them apart to be his holy people. And this covenant itself is anticipating a better and new covenant through the new and better mediator that is Jesus. And so I want to walk through uh, kind of three particular aspects and thoughts about what God does and look at how God uniquely, Yahweh himself, did this with Israel, but on this side of the cross, how these truths and realities show and reveal the pattern of salvation and how God always deals with his people. So number one, he rescues his people to himself. Our God is a God who rescues his people to himself. So first, when we open up Exodus 19, we got to go back and remember the rescue from slavery in Egypt. Now, we're jumping into this, back into this series in Exodus, and we spent a lot of time at the beginning of last year, and kind of the subtitle of this series was Rescued from Slavery. And, and he's going to remind us immediately in chapter 19 of that, and we're going to summarize much of what happened. But then the first 18 chapters, that was kind of the dominant theme, that, that Israel was rescued from slavery. But now from 19 and following, particularly through the end of 24, we're going to see Israel's rescued for new life. That he rescued them for a purpose, and his purpose was that they might live a new life. And then we'll find out in the end from uh, 25 on that they're rescued for worship. So we're rescued from slavery. We're rescued to new life. We're rescued for the glory of God or for worship. And so we're in the middle of that transition where we're now seeing what is this new life. But before we do that, uh, the, the author is going to remind us we've got to go back and remember redemption. We've got to go back and remember how God saved us. And this is true for the people of God even today. We need regular reminders of what it took for God to deliver us. We need to remember who we used to be outside of the grace and mercy of God in Christ. We need to remember what it was like for him to rescue us to this new life. This is a pattern in all of Holy Scripture. So again, look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, about almost three months after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day when they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness there Israel encamped before the mountain. So again, let's remember what's happened. 400 years in slavery underneath the Egyptian thumb, suffering in bondage. But then God called Moses in this miraculous work, said, I'm going to deliver these people through you. And he set them free, and he set them free through these 10 plagues that were incredible acts and demonstrations of his supreme power over all the false gods in Egypt. Using nature to demonstrate, you have these false gods you think can do this. Let me show you how I smash them. But Pharaoh and his arrogance and, and, uh, kept the people of God underneath his thumb. And so God cont continued to send plague after plague after plague to demonstrate his superiority over the false gods of Egypt. And then finally, the climactic plague, the death of the firstborn. And Israel, if you remember, were saved. Their firstborn was saved by putting the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. So that as God's wrath and judgment came out to kill the firstborn, the, the people of God, their firstborn were saved because the blood of a lamb, a sacrifice, covered them. And then God set them free and delivered them through the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army came after them. The Red Sea parted. Israel walked through. They'd been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Walked through on dry land, cross over, and then the very sea that they walked through crushed the Egyptian army, and they were set free, and they worshipped. And then they wandered around and complained in the wilderness almost immediately. And God miraculously provided for them, though he had set them free, he had saved them, he miraculously provided them water from a rock, manna from heaven, taking care of his people. And now three months later, they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, why is this important? Why is this detail significant? Because it reminds us our God is a faithful God. 
that he keeps his promises. You may forget, but when God called Moses and said, you're going to be the deliverer I'm going to use to do this, Moses was a bit reluctant and insecure and concerned. And do you remember the interaction in chapter 3, verse 11? But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But God said, Yahweh said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Sinai. So in this moment, they're now, they've reached the foot of Sinai. God has kept his promise. He told Moses, I will set you free. I will set my people free. I will use you to do this. And you'll know this has all happened, that I've done it, and I've done it through you when you're here to serve me, to worship me on Sinai. Our holy God is faithful to keep his promises. One of the ways his holiness, his otherness, his uniqueness is revealed is in the fact that God is undefeated in promise keeping. Never one time has he made a promise that later he was like, ah, I can't keep that one. He's always kept his word. He's never made a promise and broken it. He's always faithful to do what he said he's going to do. He's never said he would do something and has not done it. He's perfect in his promise keeping. His track record is flawless. You can trust him. This God is worthy of your worship because he's always faithful to his word. You need to remember his faithfulness. Maybe this afternoon with your family or your roommates or your friends, you can look back over 2022 and recognize faithful God moments. Recognize moments, look, our God was faithful last year. He kept his word. He kept his promises. And look back and talk about the specific ways you saw him keep his promises and let your heart be stirred to worship. It is good for our souls to slow down and recognize God's faithfulness to his promises generally. But specifically, he wants to remind Israel, and I believe us, of his faithfulness to redeem and save and set us free. Look at verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So Moses, the mediator, goes up to God. And the Lord God called out to him from the mountain. And he tells him, you're to address the house of Jacob, the people of Israel. He's using formal language because we're entering into a covenant. This is talking about what does it look like when a king forms a covenant with a people. So he uses their formal language, their formal name. And says, Moses, I'm, I'm letting you know there's something unique and relational happening here. This is formal covenant language. Two parties are about to enter a covenant relationship. And the first thing Israel needs to recognize about this covenant relationship is that it's built on the finished work God had already accomplished in their rescue. So this covenant is going to be formed because of what God has already done. So notice what he says. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You remember the ten plagues. You remember the death of the firstborn. You remember the Red Sea. You remember how I flexed all of my sovereign power over all of their false gods and set you free. You remember what I did, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And what's interesting, many commentators would point out, and even we would just meditate and think for just a moment, the eagle is a bird of prey and a bird of rescue. So like Yahweh rescued Israel, By destroying her enemies, so too God is rescuing and delivering Israel and bringing to safety. Like Yahweh snatched Israel away from her enemies, 
and unto life like an eagle who could be a bird of prey in one moment, but then protecting and caring for her own in another. See, in the Bible, salvation is always the loving and redemptive relational work of the Lord. Always. Salvation is always a loving, redemptive, relational work of Yahweh. Not of man, but of God. Like an eagle with her young, rescuing and protecting. Deuteronomy 32.9 captures it this way. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, again, or Israel, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. When an eagle teaches her eaglets, her young, to fly, she has to come to the nest and stir them up to give them the courage to fly. But then she stirs them up, gets them out of the nest, but then hovers over them. Should one of them falter, they won't fall. Because mama will swoop underneath and catch them on her wings. And so Yahweh is saying, no, no, Israel, remember, I crushed your enemies. And I carried you like an eagle with her babies on, on my back, making sure you didn't falter or fall. I wasn't idle. I was with you. I carried you. I sustained you. I got you through. Yahweh reminds Israel, I rescued you to myself. And friends, this is true for Israel and the Exodus, and this is true for the church and our salvation in Christ. Did not Christ our Savior come to seek and save the lost? Luke 19.10. Is he not the one who was saying, no, no, I'm going to come to those who are lost, and I'm going to seek them, I'm going to save them. Did not our Christ snatch us from bondage to sin, to Satan, and to the grave? Did not Christ say explicitly, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day? There's a great, great poem or quote attributed to John Bunyan. I don't think he actually said it, uh, though it often gets attributed to him, that captures the beauty of God's rescuing power and how he rescues us to himself. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Christian, he brought you to himself on the eagle's wings. Somebody needs to wake up this morning and testify and look at your neighbor and say, I got brought. <laughs> you were saved. You were delivered. You were saved by God himself who bore you on his wings. This is our God. This is the God of salvation. Our holy God is a rescuer of his beloved. His holiness is on display and revealed in this relational rescue. Now, it's incredibly important that we note the pattern and order of salvation so that we rightly understand the covenant and the law and the gospel. Israel was saved by grace through faith, not by works. Again, notice what's happening. This saving was into a new covenant relationship. So they were saved by grace through faith in this covenant-keeping God in order to accomplish and bring forth good works to be his special people. And there are plenty of much debated aspects of discontinuity and continuity between Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New Covenant. I don't have time to get into all that today. But what I want you to see is the pattern of salvation is the same from beginning to end. God saves by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb. This is true for Israel. It's true for the church. For Israel, by grace, through faith in the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, anticipating the Lamb to come. On this side of the cross, by grace, through faith in the Lamb, the Son of God who's come and died in our place. 
we understand this was a picture and pointer to the one to come. We're saved by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb. But in both of these cases, saints of old, saints and new, this salvation was salvation unto new life. And that's what we're going to talk about as we jump into the law, as we get into the Ten Commandments next, next week, that God intends to save us unto new life. There's a new life to be lived with this God who saved us. But you got to see it in light of his redeeming work. Because he saved us, we live a new life. We don't live a new life in hopes that he would save us, but because he has delivered us, we now live a new life. So you see this, this order, this priority in verse 5. Now, therefore, in light of the fact you've already been rescued, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So there's a condition, and we'll talk about it. Israel destroys it and breaks it, and there's all kind of mess. So the rest of the Old Testament, we've got a long way to go. But he gives them this condition. If you will obey my voice, I'm initiating this covenant with you. And if you enter this covenant with me, let me tell you who you're going to be in this covenant. Number one, my treasured possession among all peoples. So he lets them know, listen, the whole earth is mine. I own everybody. They're all made in my image. Even the ones that reject me, they'll face me in the end. But should you understand I rescued you and I rescued you for new life, in this new life I need you to understand you are my treasured possession. You step into my home and you find out you're the most precious thing there, God is saying. You come into my kingdom and the thing that's twinkling in my eye with affection is when I'm talking about my people. That I purchased them with my blood. They are my treasured possession like a king would show off his greatest treasure uh, in Israel. God is saying, you are my greatest treasure. Those who have been saved by me are my greatest treasure. There's a special glow in his eyes for the redeemed. And it's not because we did anything. Again, Deuteronomy makes it crystal clear. Chapter 7, verse 6. For your people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping in an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Friend, if you're in Christ, you're the treasured possession of the Lord. But he also says, notice, you'll be a kingdom of priests. That, hey, everybody in this kingdom that I'm saving are being saved in order to serve the living God. Now, the priesthood will be developed more fully later, but at this point, what he's saying is that every individual, and on the New Testament, on this side, we call the priesthood of believers, every individual matters and has been saved in order to serve the living God, to bring glory to the living God. So you're my treasured possession, and you're, you're, you're here, you're a kingdom of priests. You might be like, I can't be no priest. You are in Christ. <laughs> I can't, well, no, it doesn't, you don't have, like your opinion doesn't matter right now. This is what he says about you if you're in Christ. <laughs> This is who you are. You're called and set free and rescued to serve and bring glory and honor to God, to serve in his kingdom like a priest. And then he says, thirdly, you're a holy nation. The nation of Israel was chosen and set apart to represent and point to the holy God of Israel. They were the unique people. God said, I set my affection on you because I set my affection on you. And my affection set on you means you're a unique people that's going to show off my glory by your holiness by your set-apartness, by the fact that I'm choosing you and transforming you, I'm going to use you in the world among all peoples to show off who I am. 
Their new holy lives were meant to proclaim the excellencies of Yahweh. In the church, the same is now true of us. Now, those who God has called from every tribe, tongue, and nation to put faith in Christ, we need reminders that's God's rescuing grace that defines us and places us among his people for his glory. What he has done determines who we are, not what we have done. So he delivered Israel. He delivered all who have faith in Christ. So his finished work is what defines our identity. We are his treasured possession. Why? Because he says so. Because he set his affections on us. And he did this, that we might be a kingdom of priests serving and bring glory to him, that we might be a holy people transformed by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate what it looks like for God to snatch somebody out of death and give them new life. And then place them in a community where all of them, that's their story and testimony. This is not me. This is Bible. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. What does Peter do? He draws on this language. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, his treasured possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now in Christ, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Not just Peter, Paul uses this language, ties us to Exodus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem. That's Exodus language. To set us free, to buy us back, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. John in that great revelation that he received. Same thing, Revelation chapter one, verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God's rescuing grace ought to motivate our holiness, our obedience, and our faithfulness to his mission with his people. This is who we are, rescued by the grace of God, brought on eagle's wings by our promise-keeping God in order to be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation among the nations. What a glorious privilege it is to be rescued by God, to God, for God's glory. This is the pattern of salvation God has always operated with according to the scriptures. So you want a New Year's resolution? You should bank on his promises. Find your identity in his finished work. Live holy lives in the community he's given together on his mission. Let that be your resolution for the new year. God, make me bank on your promises. Give me grace to live a holy life with your people on your mission. That's who you are. That's the life you ought to live. So Israel's rescued. God intends to make a covenant with them as a special people. But notice just because they're rescued and redeemed doesn't mean they can kick their feet up and relax in his holy presence. He doesn't rescue them to their old lives. He doesn't save you from your sins so you can be like, bet it up, now I'm going to go to heaven. I can live however I want. You don't understand gospel if you think that way. You don't understand what it means to have been in bondage and to have been set free. Those who've been transformed and saved are like, wait a minute, I hate sin now. I love God now. 
And when I sin, it feels good in the moment, but then there's this thing called conviction, and, and I don't want to do that. I want this new life. So you don't suddenly become lax and lackadaisical with the presence of God if you've been redeemed. In fact, he turns up even in this moment. They must get ready to hear from him. Secondly, he prepares his people for his word. He prepares his people for his word. Look at verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. So notice what's happening. Moses is mediating between the people and the Lord. A mediator is a a go-between, one who brings two parties together. So Moses shares all the words that the Lord Yahweh had given to him to the people with the people, and then he takes the people's response and their words back to Yahweh. He takes those words back to Yahweh. He's a mediator. He goes in between. And Moses lets lets the Lord know the people have agreed to this covenant. They said, yes, we will be your chosen people, your kingdom of priests, your holy nation. Yes, we're in. So the Lord lets them know, okay, I'm going to come. And he tells Moses, I'm going to come in a thick cloud so that the people can hear my voice to you and believe that when I speak through you and to you, my voice clearly has said and demonstrated to them, I am the Lord, I have spoken, you are my mediator, they ought to and must obey. Notice how God makes himself known by speaking. By speaking. I think sometimes we're like, God, show yourself to me. God is like, you don't know me. I reveal myself by speaking. Christianity, grounded in Judaism, historically, Christianity is a religion of the ears, not of the eyes. God speaks. He reveals himself through his word. And in this moment, he said, I'm going to speak, and they're going to hear Moses. And when they hear, they're going to believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Paul says in Romans 10, 17. So God is a God who reveals himself through his word. Ultimately, in Christ, the final mediator, the word become flesh. God's final word to us in the person and work of his son. This is why we preach as Christians. It's why we value the preaching moment. It's why I was trembling about thinking about preaching the sermon. Because we believe God speaks in these moments. Inasmuch as the word is preached faithfully, God is speaking now in your hearing. Nothing from me and my flesh that's wrong, but everything that's faithful to his word right now, he's communicating, he's speaking, he's revealing himself through his word. This is why we care about the pulpit. A faithful, and even we see from Moses, a faithful man of God shares all of God's word. Just goes back and forth, and again, not... Moses was a unique mediator. Christ is the ultimate mediator. But now as servants of Christ in this kingdom, when we preach the word, our job is to preach all of the word. Not just portions we like or easy and simple or might build a fast-growing church. No, we preach the whole thing. We're servants of the word. And those hearing were those who said, God, no, no, speak to me. I need your word. So the Lord instructs Moses to prepare the people for the covenant. Continuing on, second half of verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. 
Be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So Yahweh tells Moses, Go consecrate the people. Set them apart. Make them holy. Sanctify them. Get them ready to be in the presence of God, hearing the voice of God. And he gave them two days to get ready. They had to wash their garments so there was a cleanliness. They had to fast and abstain from sexual intimacy with their spouse. That's what verse 15 is about. I know he was like, yo, what is that talking about? So there, there was this, no, 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 there, that's, that's glorious and wonderful and good. But God is saying those are unique fasting because there's about to be a unique word from the Lord. So wash your garments. Prepare yourself. Fast, abstain from the pleasures and get ready to hear from the word of God. He will descend and speak on the third day. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but it's very possible. I read one commentator, one scholar was making the argument that probably there's a sacrifice. Anytime you're consecrating or sanctifying or preparing the people for the presence of God, there was a sacrifice of blood. So it's possible that that's there, though it's not clearly in the text. But either way, what God has told Moses, get the people ready, consecrate them, wash them, set them apart, get them ready for the third day where the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people and his voice will be heard. But also notice in 12 and 13, he says, you gotta, but you've got to set limits for all the people. Don't let them come up the mountain nor touch, lest they die, execution immediately. Like his holiness is a problem for sinners. So he said, no, no, I'm coming down uniquely, and I'm inviting you to hear my word, but don't get too close lest you die. And you deserve to die because God is that holy and you are that flawed. So Moses did as the Lord said. He went down to the people and consecrated the people. And notice there was this mention of a trumpet blast, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. That this trumpet blast was going to be announcing this ability to enter and get closer unto the Lord. But what you need to see right now, what I need to see right now is God's holiness is too much for sinners. But his mercy desires that none should perish, which is why he sets the limits. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. Like, my holiness is too much for you. It will kill you. Which is why I'm saying set these boundaries so that you don't die because I'm merciful. So I'm not going to stop being holy just because you show up. <laughs> but I'm also merciful. I don't want you to die. I'm actually wanting to speak to you. I want to have a word with you. I want to help you. I want to draw. I'm like an eagle drawing you, bringing you to myself. So Moses did as the Lord said. Just a few lessons for us on this side of the cross. Friends, you cannot approach God on your own merit in your own dirt. You're too dirty to go to God by yourself. And you ought to know that. And I don't say that to be mean. I say it because it's so biblically obvious. None of us are good enough on our own because of our filth and sin to approach a holy God, lest we die. Like, he's just, like here's the thing. You've never made the mistake of thinking God was too holy. That's never an error you've made. It's impossible. He's holier than mine and your brains can imagine. His otherness is more other than we can imagine. So you've never made the mistake of take, thinking too highly about God. It's always been the mistake of thinking too low. You've also never made the mistake of thinking too highly about your sin and its offense against the holy God. You've never made that mistake. You might have made the mistake of thinking, well, that makes me unsavable, 
which minimizes his mercy, that might be a mistake you've made. But you've never made the mistake of thinking your sin was more heinous than it actually is. God is more holy than you think. You're more sinful than you think, and that's a greater problem than you think. This is what we see even in these limits. You can't approach God on your own merit and your own dirt. Ask Nadab and Abihu, who were burned by the fire from God's altar. Or Uzzah, who touched the ark of God's presence and died. So again, today on this side of Calvary, why is it that we can come to God freely, even with our filth and our stains of sin? We can do that because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. As if Jesus had approached the holy God with our sinful dirt. This is what happens in Calvary. This is why Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is sweating great drops of blood. Because he knows he's about to take the wrath of God. As if God, God's holiness is as holy as it is. And as if he is as sinful as you and I are. And he's approaching God on Calvary. So the wrath of God is poured out on him. But he took that wrath in our place. Because God is merciful and kind and loving. So that then he could die that death so that then through faith in Christ we can approach God and not be afraid we're going to die. We can come as we are with all of our filth and guilt and stains knowing Christ is the one who's taking care of it for us. So this side of the cross we understand and know God is not less holy in the New Testament. His Holy Son has just done everything necessary to make sinners like us be able to be right with a holy God. We have the blood of Christ to consecrate us to sanctify us, to wash us, to set us apart. So they had to get ready to be and hear God's word. Well, the word himself came to us to prepare us for God's word. See, author of Hebrews 10.10, by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, I think in a day like ours where authenticity is championed and casual is normal, that we can be tempted to believe the lie to approach a holy God and his holy word is a casual and small thing. I think we need to be reminded who we're dealing with. I think we need to be reminded of how holy he is, how sinful we are, and how lovely his son is. So again, we don't want to just see his holiness so we can be like, oh, God is mean and angry. Say like he's not mean and angry. He's just that pure. We want to see that. We don't want to just see our sinfulness. So it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm the worst human on the planet ever, Clint. I get it. It's like that's not the end goal. The end goal is he is more holy, I'm more sinful. The cross of Christ is more lovely. So if, if you minimize his holiness, you minimize the love of the cross. If you minimize your sin, you minimize the glory of the cross. In the King's Cross, we love the cross. We're not minimizing nothing. So approach God through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Pray for God's help to have a higher view of his word. Pray for the Spirit's help on the way to worship every Sunday. Like in the car every Sunday. Short, simple prayer. Me and my family pray every Sunday on the way here. God, help us to approach your word rightly. Help us hear and believe. Don't step in here casually. You're coming to hear from God. Stepping here with the weightiness of that. But do it through faith in Christ. As we'll see in just a minute. We got a little more intensity though. Let's go there. So Moses done all that Yahweh told him to do. Preparations for Israel to encounter the living God and hear his word has been made. Thirdly and lastly, he overwhelms his people with his holy presence. He overwhelms his people with his holy presence, just like he said he would. The Lord comes down on the third day. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God at the foot of the mountain. Look at verse 16. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain. The Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God comes down on the third day just like he promised. Moses brings the people to the mountain. But I just want to highlight a couple quick things. I love this, this comment from one commentator. God comes down to the mountain. God comes down to the highest point in the land. One commentator says, God is not like the pagan gods who lived on Mount Olympus. He did not dwell on Mount Sinai. He only came down for a visit. He's higher than that. He had to come down to the mountaintop to interact with his people. And can you imagine the sound in this moment? Can you see the sights? Crashing thunder, flashes of bright lightning, a thick, dark cloud enveloping the mountain, Sinai wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. This is his holy presence. How did he show up to Moses? In a burning bush, his, the fire demonstrates him. You better not get too close, you'll get burnt. Like the mountain is thundering and lightning and trembling. And there's smoke and there's cloud. It's intense, it's loud, and the trumpet just keeps getting louder and louder and louder. Can you imagine this moment? The Israelites would be like, my goodness, like, I, I don't think we realized who we were coming to, to hear from. We don't understand the holiness and purity and perfections of God. But listen by faith. Do you hear that trumpet louder and louder? Can you feel the anticipation of, like, what's he going to say in the midst of all of this glory? It's like, it's like a, I, I've come into a volcanic thunderstorm. Like the heat, the fire, the burning, the noise, it's all more intense than my brain can get itself around. What is he going to say? The trumpet just keeps going. Like, your senses are overwhelmed. What's he going to say? Can you imagine? Imagine he felt like Isaiah. Fountains of the threshold shook the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, maybe he felt what John felt when he received the revelation in Revelation 4 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, this is like a volcanic eruption in the middle of a thunderstorm. As he had done throughout the plagues, God is flexing, using nature to demonstrate his omnipotence. But that's still not the climax. Moses spoke and God answered. From the thunder comes the voice of God. Israel heard the voice of God. What would you do if you were there? Let me tell you what you'd do. What everyone else did, tremble. It says the entire mountain trembled. So everyone there trembled. The whole the earth itself was shaking in, in fear of the power of this one who is speaking. That's what it's like to be near the holy presence of God. He couldn't be seen. He was concealed. But he was allowing his power of his presence to be felt. He was revealed. Concealing enough for them not to die. But revealing enough for them to tremble with the fear of death. Again, this is not my words. This is their words. 
If you skim down to, on the other side of this, Exodus chapter 20, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The Lord again instructs Moses on keeping the people back, consecrating the priests who come near and bringing Aaron up with him. Look at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through the Lord and look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountains and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So the Lord reminds Moses not to break through lest they perish. He reminds Moses that even the priests who come near must approach on his own terms. They must be consecrated lest he break out against them. Moses is like, look, you've made it clear. None of us are coming through. <laughs> like, we're good. You've told us we're not approaching. We're all terrified anyway. Moses faithfully told them what the Lord had said. But notice in this moment, his people are overwhelmed with his holy presence. So Yahweh rescues his people to himself. He prepares his people for his covenant word, and he overwhelms them with his presence. So as we wrap up this morning, how does this holy moment on the mountain with the holy God inform us of who we are now in Christ on this side of Calvary? I titled this message, Tremble and Rejoice. And I want to conclude with a conclusion and a brief point from this side of Calvary. Why tremble and rejoice? Tremble and rejoice in Christ and in the new covenant. See, Aaron, this faithful uh, assistant to Moses, this, this priest, the golden calf incident is coming up in Exodus 32. Israel fails miserably. They lose it. They botch the whole covenant. So this moment, they go wholly trembling in the presence of God to later say, ah, let's create a golden calf and say it delivered us out of bondage in, in Israel or in Egypt. So Israel's going to fail. They deserve to be ripped apart like animals they had to sacrifice, which you were making this covenant promise that if I break this covenant, rip me apart. But God is gracious and faithful. Israel wasn't chosen because she was holy. She was holy because she was chosen. And God promised, even through Moses, that there'd be a better mediator and a new covenant that would be unbreakable because both parties would keep it perfectly. His overwhelming transcendence and his volcanic holiness perfectly revered, and yet his condescending mercy freely distributed to the undeserving. How? Why was God so long-suffering in the Old Testament with Israel, despite her unfaithfulness? Moses' words, Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Moses says, there's going to be another one. God will keep his promises the covenant will be fulfilled through this other one who will be coming a prophet like Moses. You remember in our study in Matthew, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. What happened? After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said, Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents. One here for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when God interrupts. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Moses said, there's going to be a prophet coming. Listen to him. Transfiguration happens. Voice of God from heaven. Cloud, bright shining light. Cloud, this voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and they were terrified. They're trembling. But Jesus came and tested them saying, rise. Have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus says, no, 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 hold on, time out, time out. This is a new covenant. This is a game changer. Holy reverence, yes, fear like that, no. I am the one you're to listen to. I am the one who's coming. And he's going to fulfill both parties' covenant responsibilities. So he's going to be the holy God making and keeping the covenant, but he's going to be truly man, living and perfectly obeying the covenant. But then he's going to die as a substitute on the cross, take the wrath of God as if he pushed through and touched God and had to die. In our place, and on the third day, he's going to get up and show that I'm truly God, truly man. I kept both sides of the covenant. All who have faith in me have no need to be afraid. But instead, worship. He's the perfect mediator that brings us to God. We got brought. This is what Christ did. Hebrews 12 says it like this. If you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, a different mountain, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. Somebody say a better word. A better word than the blood of Abel. So we come to Christ who keeps both sides of this covenant for us. And I just want to point out very briefly... Do you see the implications for our corporate worship every Sunday that the Lord gives us in 2023? You don't know the privilege of the moment you're in right now. Because he's more holy than you realize. And you're more sinful than you realize. And the covenant-keeping Christ is more beautiful than you realize. And when he brings you into this assembly, it's like an assembly at the foot of Sinai, but now at the foot of Calvary. And in this assembly, as we do this and as we proclaim his excellencies, as the chosen people of God, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, we do so with the angels. Do you understand when we sing God's praises, we're not alone? I want to make you uncomfortable this morning. (laughs) One commentator says it like this. Each Sunday we come to something more wonderful. By faith we step into heaven and around us are thousands of angels. And all the Christians who have died now made perfect. They're with the angels standing next to you when you sing. I'm not playing with metaphors here. And I realize this sounds strange to us, but this physical world is not all that there is. There's a heavenly realm that is separate from our earthly realm, but which intersects it. 
We're linked to it because we're linked to Jesus. We stand there with him. So whenever we gather on earth, we are also simultaneously gathering in heaven. My God, when we come to worship, it's better than we realize. When we approach his word and hear from him, it's greater than we realize. One day in full, we will realize. Until that day, let us sing in reverence and worship now. Let's close in prayer. Father.